Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading can be found on page 740 of the Pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 to chapter 53, verse 12, on page 740. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors the second reading can be found on page 1061 Luke chapter 24 verses 13 to 35 on page 1061 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which, to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he, if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Heavenly Father, please, as we've already prayed, as we come to your word, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to believe, and would you send us out from this place with minds full of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was speaking to a friend of mine called John. John isn't a Christian, and uh, we were talking about Christian things, and I said uh, to John, John, uh, if you got to the end of your life and you were speaking to God, and he asked you why you hadn't believed in him, what would you say? And John thought about that question for a moment, and then he replied in this way. He said, because you didn't give me enough evidence to believe. Now, if that's true, it's a powerful argument. But is it? Is it true? What would John accept as evidence, I wonder? I've heard people say, if Jesus appeared to me now, kind of stood in front of me, and did something amazing, then I'd believe in him. Is that what we're missing? 
What do we need in order to have confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be and did indeed die and rise again from the dead? Do we need him to stand here in front of us and do something amazing? And in fact, even if he did stand here in front of us, is that how he would prove himself? By doing something amazing. One of the reasons I love this account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus is because their situation is so similar to ours. And Jesus answers exactly those questions that I've just posed. Jesus takes these disciples from blindness to sight, not by dazzling them with amazing miracles, but by enlightening them with the scriptures. Let's see how he does that. In your mind's eye, begin to walk along the road with those two disciples. Feel the uneven stones and the dust beneath your sandals. Notice another traveler whose path is about to join our own. And in the first leg of our journey with these disciples, we're about to see their blindness exposed. That's the first point on the handout, their blindness exposed. All of this is taking place on the first Easter morning. We looked last week at the account of the women going to the tomb on that morning, finding it empty, seeing the angels who told them Jesus was alive, rushing back to tell the disciples the news. But their words seemed to the disciples like nonsense. And two of those disciples, not two of the 12 disciples, but two of Jesus' wider circle of followers, they've left. They've left Jerusalem. Look down at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were leaving because Jesus was dead. And as far as they were concerned, that was that. But as they went, verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. I bet they were. Jesus, his life, the last week with his arrest, trial, torture, and execution, and then the bizarre confusion of that morning, what else would they talk about? And then with the sort of ironic twist you'd expect to get in a Shakespeare play, verse 15 says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. We can see it's Jesus, but these disciples are blind to what's going on. Now, presumably at this point, it is God who's keeping them from recognizing that it's Jesus. But at this point, it's not clear as to why. Jesus draws them into conversation, verse 17. He asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. Downcast because they're contemplating the bitter sadness of Jesus' death. But standing still, I think, in kind of surprise at the apparent ignorance of this man. He's obviously overheard something of what they're saying, but he doesn't understand what events they're talking about. And so verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Or probably a better translation of that is, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He's saying, where have you been the last week? Can you imagine speaking over the garden fence to one of your neighbours the day after the Brexit vote and them saying, referendum, what referendum? You'd, you'd wonder where they'd been. You would, it would be difficult to imagine how someone could be that ignorant, if, even if they wanted to be. How can you not know? See what's happening? The disciples think that Jesus is in the dark, that he's, he's blind to recent events. But actually, it's them. It's their blindness that's being exposed. They're blind to the fact that they're speaking to Jesus, and we're about to see that they're blind to the significance of recent events. So when Jesus asks them in verse 19, what things, 
Their reply allows us to see their blindness exposed. Take a look down at their reply from verse 19. What things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. That's a fairly promising assessment so far, but then comes verse 20. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They had hoped. But then Jesus was arrested, tried, and killed, and so their hopes had been scuppered. Their faces are downcast. They're walking away from Jerusalem, thinking it was all over. The evidence for Jesus being the Christ who would redeem Israel had persuaded them right up until the point that he suffered and died. They'd been expecting a triumphant Messiah who would go into Jerusalem and vanquish the occupying Roman army and save Israel. What they had was a crucified leader on a cross put in a tomb. And they couldn't compute the idea of a Messiah who would suffer and die. We had hoped. As they continue speaking, they keep kind of piling up evidence that should have persuaded them that Jesus was the Christ. It's almost comic the way they fail to see what all this evidence before them is pointing to. Follow along from halfway through verse 21. And what is more, the evidence is piling up, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, the evidence is piling up. Some of, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, evidence piling up. Then, more evidence piling up, some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And you know what? We just don't know what to make of all this. Now, for the reader of Luke's gospel, bells are going off all over the place because Jesus had said this would happen repeatedly through the gospel. For example, chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. They've seen Jesus suffer, be rejected and killed, and now on the third day, all of the evidence is screaming that Jesus is alive, but they still say, we had hoped. They're blind to the real meaning of the events they're describing. All of this should act as a wake-up call to those of us who have been going to church for a long time. These disciples, you see, they were on the inside. They were in the room that morning when the women arrived back from the tomb. They had an inside track to the events of the gospel, but they were blind to see their true significance. And going to church, knowing the Bible, being on the inside, is no guarantee that you or I we'll see and understand the implications of the gospel. A few years ago, I was snowboarding in the Alps and a beautiful sunny day. Uh, one of the problems on a sunny day when you're snowboarding is if your goggles get kind of warm in the sun, they can begin to steam up and then you can't see where you're going. If you've skied or snowboarded, you'll know that's an annoying experience. And so I took my uh, goggles off and spent the rest of the morning uh, snowboarding without anything protecting my eyes. The problem with that is there's a reason you're supposed to wear them. And uh, with the bright sun shining on the white snow, reflecting into my eyes, slowly uh, over the morning, my eyes became less and, and le- more and more kind of sens- insensitive to the light. I was suffering, um, unknown to me, from what people call snow blindness. 
Um, and so at lunchtime, when I went into a cafe just off the side of the piste and went downstairs to the gents' loo, I went into the uh, toilets, it was in the basement, and I was looking around thinking, why is the lighting so poor in here? This is ridiculous. I can hardly see anything. I was looking for a dimmer switch on the wall, thinking, that, what's going on? I was always, almost going to go and complain to the management that they had put such dim lighting in this room. I mean, ridiculous. Before I realized that the problem wasn't with the lighting, it was with me. I was suffering from snow blindness. And when we come to the Bible, each of us, when we read it, we're spiritually blind. The problem's with us. And that's why when you and I open the Bible, whether in church or small group or individually at home, as we did earlier in this service, we must pray for God to open our eyes to understand what we read. You and I, however long we've been coming to church, you and I will never know the Bible well enough to no longer need God to give us spiritual sight. When we look at these two disciples, we shouldn't laugh at two dummies. We should see in them ourselves. They weren't stupid. They were spiritually blind. But naturally, so are you and I. And it's a very dangerous and presumptuous thing for any of us to read the Bible without prayerfully depending on God to open our eyes and to help us see. So when you sit down and read the Bible, make it your habit. This sometimes slips for me and I need to rebuke myself and get back on it. But when you read your Bible, make it your habit to humbly ask God to help you see. The psalmist prays, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And so must we. I mentioned earlier that the situation of these disciples is so similar to our own. And here's why. Think of the evidence that they had for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They've heard Jesus' predictions that he would suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. Then he has suffered and died. And now on the third day, they've heard reports from the women of the empty tomb and a vision of angels saying he's alive. Then they've heard from some of the other disciples who went and corroborated the women's account. They've got all this evidence before them, but there's one thing they lacked. Did you notice it? It's there in verse 23. They didn't find his body. And at the end of verse 24 as well. But him they did not see. The one thing they're missing, the piece of the jigsaw they're missing, is that they haven't got the body. They haven't seen Jesus. And today, we're in exactly that situation. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you've heard the reports of the empty tomb, the vision of angels, the events of that resurrection morning, but we haven't seen Jesus. If you stood here in front of me, then I'd believe. And so we think back on the road, all they need is to see Jesus, and he's right there. He just needs to go, da-da, it's me. Look, here are the wounds. Recognize me? And then all of this is going to be cleared up. But he doesn't do that. Rather than revealing his identity, we first see Jesus diagnose their hearts. And this is the second point on the handout, hearts diagnosed. Jesus' reply to the disciples' words here is there in verse 25. Take a look. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. Literally, he just says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. It's a rebuke. I suppose they must have been pretty taken aback by this guy rebuking them. I mean, a few moments ago, it had appeared that he didn't know anything about these events, and now he seems to be knowing more about them than they do. But they're intrigued, and they listen to Jesus as he diagnoses their hearts. The reason they don't believe 
is that, uh, is that there's a problem with their hearts. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. Specifically, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Their failure to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel, is a failure to believe the prophets. Because anyone who knew and believed what the prophets of the Old Testament had said would say with Jesus, verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The disciples were clear that the Messiah would, in some sense, enter his glory. What they hadn't grasped was the route to glory he would take and that it would be through suffering. They weren't looking for a suffering Messiah because they didn't expect him to take that route. Now, if you've ever had the experience of going to pick someone up from an airport, um, it's pretty straightforward. You park up, you go to the terminal, you look for a sign that says arrivals, you go to the arrivals gate and you stand there. And you know that the person that you're waiting for is going to come through that gate. How do you know that? Because when someone arrives in an airplane and hits the tarmac at an airport, there's only one way out of there. There's only one route out of the airport. They have to go into the terminal through passport control, baggage reclaim, then they're going to come out of that door. You know what to expect because there's only one route out of there. And when the the prophets made it very clear that when the Christ arrived, the route he would take would be through suffering. He would have to take that route. And so the disciples should have known what to expect. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They had been persuaded that Jesus was the Christ right up until the point that he suffered and was crucified and then they said we had hoped. The very events, this is the point, the very events that made them doubt that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel should have persuaded them and deepened their conviction that he was indeed the one they'd been waiting for. They had seen all the signs but interpreted them in totally the wrong way and this is the diagnosis for their blindness how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The problem isn't ignorance. It's not that they don't know the prophets. It's that they're slow of heart to believe it. It's a heart problem. So as we've walked along the road with these disciples, we've seen their blindness exposed. We've seen their hearts diagnosed. And in the final leg, we see how sight is disclosed. But again, notice how Jesus goes about disclosing sight to these blind disciples. He doesn't say, da-da, it's me. Because they had all along in the scriptures all they needed to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. And so instead, this is what Jesus did. Look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a way of summarizing the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself Now, this is such an exciting encounter because although Jesus is physically present with them on the road, he doesn't tell them to look to him or to touch him or to see his wounds, but rather what he does is, in effect, he takes a Bible and he opens it and begins to explain to them what's written there about him. Don't look up into my face, look down into my word. That's where you'll see and find me. That's where you'll get confidence about who I am and why I suffered. That's where sight is disclosed. Now, I would love to know what Old Testament passages Jesus took them through that day. We don't know, but I expect he showed them lots of examples of how he had fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, particularly those prophecies that said the Christ would suffer. Perhaps he reminded them of the Passover lamb that had to die to save the firstborn son in each Israelite home. 
He might have spoken about the sacrificial system and explained that animals being sacrificed in the temple was only ever a picture to help us understand what the Christ would do, dying in the place of others to take away their sins. I've put on the bottom of the handout a few passages from the Old Testament that speak of how the the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer, in case you'd like to look at those later. But if I were a betting man, and I'm not, but if I were, I'd put my money and a considerable amount of it on one of the passages that Jesus uh, took them to, having been Isaiah 53, which we had read earlier in the service. There, the prophet Isaiah writes this about the Christ. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Did not the Christ have to suffer? Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was on us, peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was always a crucified Christ who was going to redeem Israel. Isaiah concludes, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. God's plan to save his people had always been to send the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who would suffer and die in punishment for our sins to bring us peace, only to rise again. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures point us to Jesus because they show us that we need a saviour and that God's promised one to us. So when we see Jesus appearing on the pages of the New Testament, our hearts are ready to receive him. They're fertile ground. We're ready for him. Well, back on the road, the best Bible study the world has ever seen is drawing to a close. And because we're nearing the disciples' destination. But Jesus is about to do one more strange thing. Take a look down at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. And he does that in order to draw out the invitation in verse 29. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. They settled down to a meal and it says, verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. It was at this point God chose to lift the veil so they could recognize Jesus. But why was it at this moment God chose to let the penny drop? I think honestly we can't be exactly sure. These disciples weren't at the Last Supper, but maybe the others had reported to them what had happened there. And as they watched Jesus breaking the bread, giving thanks and handing it out, they remembered his words reported to them, this is my body broken for you. And all the discussion of a Christ who would suffer suddenly made sense. Maybe that was it. Maybe something Jesus did just gave them one of those deja vu moments and they realized why. But the big reason takes us back to that unanswered question from earlier on of why they were kept from recognizing Jesus in the first place. For a time, they were kept from recognizing Jesus and here's why. So he could get them to look at what they really needed to see. Not his body, but the Bible. So that they would say to others, you know, the most important part of our encounter with Jesus on the road that day 
It wasn't in the house, it was on the road. We only saw him for a moment in the flesh, but now we'll see him for a lifetime in the scriptures. He showed us where to see him and it's somewhere you can see him too. And that's why in verse 32, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? If you're not a Christian here today, we at this church want to get you to look at the Bible because it's as we have done so ourselves that God has shown us Jesus and we want that for you. It's been our experience here time and time again that as people humbly read the Bible, they come to see Jesus and the full significance of his life, death and resurrection and we want that for you. If Jesus stood here in front of me now and did something amazing, then I'd believe in him. No, no. If Jesus stood here in front of you now, he would take a Bible and open it and show you what it says about him. He'd show you that it's a book all about him and what he's done. So many people think it's a book about us and what we need to do to make God like us. But really, it's a book about Jesus and what he's done because he already loves us. That's why the Christian message is called good news, not good advice. Good advice is suggestions about how you can get something done. Good news is a report about what has already been done. Jesus wants to show you what he's done and that it's good news for you. And if you're a Christian here and you are struggling with doubts, um, and all of us do at some point or another, know that what you need isn't beyond your reach. Confidence in your faith will come not from being dazzled by some ex- spiritual experience that lasts a moment and then is gone. Confidence will rise steadily as you look down at the Bible and God shows you Jesus there. So what do we do? We open the Bible. We pray for God to open our eyes and to be our teacher. If you read the Bible like that, sometimes it will still leave you feeling flat, maybe even often. But at other times, he will set your heart alight with sightings of Jesus. It was with hearts burning that those two disciples rushed back the seven miles to Jerusalem and found the 11 disciples and others with them. And as they were about to tell them the wonderful news, they found it had got there before them because Jesus had got there before them and had appeared to Simon as well. Jesus isn't trying to keep himself hidden. He's busy making himself known. But he doesn't want you to see him for a moment in the flesh. He wants you to see him for a lifetime in his word. As we draw to a close, I want to take us back to that moment on the road when the disciples are approaching their destination. But Jesus is acting as if he's going further. If you imagine that you're treading that road with Jesus and he's speaking to you and you've heard him opening the scriptures to you, but now the light of the day is beginning to dim, what would you say to him as he makes to go on? Will you watch him walk away down the road and out of sight? Or will you, like the disciples did, urge him strongly to stay? I'm asking you now, including if you're already a Christian, having heard the Bible explained, does your heart say of Jesus, I want more of him? Or are you happy to let him go? Is your Bible open day by day? Or is it closed? 
Are you asking him to give you sight as you read it, or do you think you can see on your own? If you want him, you can have him. If you ask him to stay, he will. And in many moments, spanning a lifetime, he will help you to see him more and more. The Christ who suffered and died and yet lives for you. What are you going to say to him as he makes to go on down the road? Are you going to let him go and wish you hadn't? Or invite him to stay and be glad you did? On the road that day, Jesus showed us where to find him. And it's somewhere you can find him too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that confidence in Jesus isn't out of reach for us today. That though we don't see him, he's close to hand, walking in the pages of the Bible, waiting for us to invite him in. Give us humble and hungry hearts as we read your word. And as we do, give us sightings of Jesus that set our hearts aflame with love for him and joy in the Christ who had to suffer and did and died and lives again for us. For we ask it in his name. Amen.